Welcome to the Gautrain Talks podcast station, the place to be for all matters related to the Gautrain and how it came to be South Africa's first ever high-speed commuter rail system. In studio today, Olas van Seyl, the former project coordinator on the Gautrain project between 2000 and 2016 and a former CEO of the BKS Group and former MD of Kutelia Projects. Olas, welcome. Let's start with your role and your involvement in the Gautrain project. Where did it all start and how did you get involved? Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, yes, I uh, I was project coordinator on the project for for 16 years, which is a a long period. Uh, we were appointed in April 2000, and this was after Premier Tokyo Sequale announced the project as part of 10 Blue IQ projects, uh, which the province of Gauteng wanted to to develop. And uh, the engineering consultants were appointed first in April that year. And then uh, later that year, the, the legal and the financial consultants were also appointed. Uh, and that consisted or made up the, the, the provincial support team, as we called it later on, PST. Uh, of course, there were lots of other disciplines. Uh, also working on the project, but they were appointed as sub-consultants of these uh, main disciplines of, of, of consultants. Now, you mentioned consultants. There were obviously plenty, as you mentioned, yeah. uh, different areas and different teams. Just give us a sense of the scale. How many different consultants, ballpark figure, or different companies were involved at this sort of initial phase? Yeah. Uh, maybe just before I come to that, just give you an idea of what we initially did. The The first things we did initially was to determine what type of rail we're going to and service we're going to provide. We had to do a feasibility study. Uh, we registered as a PPP project, a public-private finance or public-private partnership project. And uh, uh, for that, we had to pass certain hurdles at the at National Treasury. The first to submit a feasibility study. So that was the first thing we had to do. And how long did that feasibility and study that, take? That took until the middle of 2001. We submitted it. And the approval of that feasibility study we got in February the next year, which was 2002, which then allowed us to uh, do two things. The one is to start with the EIA, which was a very big exercise in itself. Environmental impact assessment. Uh, that's right. And then also to, to, to uh, send out the request for pre-qualification uh, to, to select the qualified bidders, which yeah. then went through a whole bidding process after that. So, so uh, uh, that was that was the feasibility study. Now, of course, for that, we required all sorts of all sorts of disciplines. Uh, after that, we went through the procurement phase. Now, a project like this is not something. It's not the traditional type of projects where you design something, you know exactly what you're going to build, and then you you develop in in, in civil projects, also a list of quantities together with your detailed design plans. You put it out to tender and uh, you award the tender and it gets built. Here, 
the it's only a very preliminary design which is being done in the beginning and so we did what we i would call sort of basic planning general planning on it when the pre-qualified bidders were appointed they then started with what we call preliminary design and they based their cost estimates and their presentations and their formal proposals in the end on this. So you can imagine yourself that at that stage, a lot of work took place with the two pre-qualified bidding companies. But of course, on our side, we also had to have the different disciplines, uh, people reacting to questions and, and proposals on what should be done and so on. Why I'm saying this is when the concessionaire was appointed at the end of the day and we started with construction, then we had what we call to do the monitoring on whether they in fact performed the functions according to the concession agreement, which is the Bible of the, of the contract. And then we had a lot of people on site. Okay, with that background, at the, during the construction phase or the development phase, we probably had between 200 and 250 people, engineers mostly, on site and in, the, in our head office. But at the other times, maybe 30, 40 people, and we drew in the expertise as we, as we required them. Now, when did the procurement process start properly and what were the requirements of that process once you got going? Well, the, the basic function is to, de to develop uh, what we call an RFP, a request for proposal. And we had, and this is one of the reasons why our procurement also took longer than, than expected, uh, we, we did an RFP 1. The RFP 1 was, was just a proposal on how the RFP document should look like. Now, remember, RFP document is a document of 1,000 pages or more, uh, so it's a fairly thick document. Uh, and we asked the two pre-qualified bidders for their comments uh, on this. Then we, devel we developed RFP 2. That was then the formal request for proposals not RFP1. RFP1 was for, for comments uh, and proposals on, on how the document and the project could be enhanced. RFP2 was submitted to, to, to the pre-qualified bidders. Uh, they had six to eight months, but remember at that stage they've been involved already with RFP1. Yes. So they knew what was going on and they started working on it and preparing. They had six to eight months to, to prepare their proposals. They asked for an extension and they were given an extension. The proposals came in and it was higher than the so-called affordability limit. The amount given to us by National Treasury as to which we may not exceed. And Both bids, you say? Excuse me? Both the bids, you say, came in higher than yes, they did? Yes, both, both of the bids mm -hmm. came higher. We then had to revise the project. Uh, fortunately, at the end, we could convince National Treasury that we could up the affordability limit slightly, but not to to the levels that that the bids made or the bidders made their proposals. Uh, so, therefore, we also had to introduce savings, and we went through a, 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 
whole process uh, of what we call constructive engagement, because you must remember now you're working under the discipline of people tendering for a project and it is very confidential and you work according to certain rules and so on. Mm. What you do with the one, you must do with the other and make sure that everybody is treated fairly. But we, we, we then discussed possible savings with them. They came up with, with savings. I can mention, for example, one was we were originally wanting to go at the, at the Ortia Airport, the uh, big international airport. We mm. wanted to go in underground and have the station underground so we can extend it underneath the runway because the future development on the airport will be between the two main runways will be what we call the midfield terminal. That will become the big terminal at the, at, at the airport. Okay, very interesting. And, uh, uh, but unfortunately, we had to go up in the air into the airport, and we saved about 300, 350 million by doing that. And we had several savings like that, which, which added up to, to quite a, a, a large amount, also on the on the Dolomite areas in Centurion, the type of rolling stock that was provided, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So so then we prepared the document and we called it RFP3. And that came in and uh, and that then we were in the right ballpark. But then the problem was that the bidders provided us with a shopping list of possible savings and we said to them look we can't have a we can't compare shopping lists with each other you've got to make now a final proposal and we agreed with them we'll sit down with each of them and tell them which of the cost saving proposals were acceptable and which not and then on that on the basis of that they must make the choice as to what is now the f- their final proposal with the project and that, that was then a further uh, RFP, RFP th- uh, 3B. Uh, but that just took two, two months approximately. And then in, that was now 2005, beginning of 2005. And then in uh, May, June that year, the, the uh, uh, preferred, actually the 2nd of July, the preferred bidder was announced. Uh, by the and 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 it was, although there was a political committee, and I can come back to that a little bit later. Yes, we said we wanted the whole provincial cabinet to be involved. You must realize, in a in a project like like this, uh, the accusations or suggestions on bribery and corruption and so on, especially after the big arms deal and yeah. and the suggestions around that, we had to be extremely careful. Also so, the scale of the project. Was, and the scale of it the was project. It a big project. And big uh, well. so we said, no, we wanted the whole full provincial cabinet to make the decision and to take the responsibility for it. So they did that in on the 2nd of July, 2005, uh, and we th- and then then you start now now you take you've got your RFP document now uh, if I can come back to that in a moment it consists out of general uh, uh, issues and the second it's three parts and the second part 
is what we call essential minimum requirements. That specifies what the project must look like. And the third part is then uh, the proposed concession agreement. So it's a draft uh, concession agreement. Mm. Now the, the bidders come and they make their proposals. And their proposals here and there deviate from, from this and it enhance it further because it's more detailed. And the two of those documents then make up the final concession agreement. But the, the RFP uh, has the priority above the concessionaire proposals uh, because all along the project they will come and tell you, but this is what we proposed, although that is what you wanted. And if there's an argument on that, there's a clause in the CA saying that the original essential minimum requirements and the RFP takes precedent over the the proposals. So all of all of these things you've you've got to look at. Now I can maybe just come back to to something which I think is important that people must realize. Yes. And, the, and this is that it's a PPP project. Yes. Now what is the purpose of a PPP project? And people public private partnership, yeah. Yeah. People will say yes, but that's to get money from from the private sector. But in a project like this, only 12%, 15% of the money came from the from the private sector. It was a publicly funded project by and large. Yeah, the, and the the philosophy, without going into detail, was that that government would largely subsidise the construction, and the idea was eventually. Uh, we can talk about that later. Not in the beginning because there, were, there was a patronage guarantee and so on because it was a greenfields project. Mm. In other words, a, a project type of project that didn't exist in South Africa and people didn't know how the public would react and the passengers and whether it would be well used. Yes. Uh, we had to give certain guarantees. It was international players participating in the in in in, in the project. But that was that was the uh, the fundamental approach. That eventually it should it would should look after itself on an operational basis. It would be and, sustainable, and it looks like it is possible for that to do so in future. But but and now you can also go over to other projects where. The private sector would fund 50% and up to certain toll roads where they fund 100%. And they are all PPPs, public-private uh, partnership projects. Yes. Now, the, the other major reason why you involve the, the private sector is for their expertise and uh, their experience in projects like this. So you've got to see how can you in, in, uh, get that from the private sector because that is not always available in government. And even if government make use of, of consultants in the private sector, there may be advantages of also getting it from the construction, the implementation side. And, uh, uh, and this relates to, to two aspects when we talk about procurement and so on. In the essential minimum requirements for the project, uh, we have we visited, for example, the Stockholm Airport to City uh, Rail Project, where the essential minimum requirement was a few pages. That was it. And so the question is, 
but how much do you have to specify in the project? What sort of detail do you go what into? What detail go, do you go in? Do you say to them, look, provide a rail system between Pretoria and Johannesburg and the airport, uh, which must be a modern system, like the most modern systems in the world? Uh, and you leave it at that, and you say, okay, you can further go further and say 10 stations or whatever. But, of course, we specified it more. We worked out the route because we had to have it for the EIA, for example. Mm. We knew exactly where we wanted the stations and, and certain things. But to give you a small little thing which we didn't do, on the ticketing machines, we just said it had to be modern, state-of-the-art ticketing machines. When they introduced them, they didn't give notes as change. And we said, but that's not modern. They said it's state of the art. And they took us to a few places where they also had ticketing machines put in in recent years that provided notes as, as change. And at that stage, even at, at the airport itself, we had ticketing parking in the parking garage, ticketing machines, which provided the notes. Mm -hmm. So now, could you, can you imagine, do you say, when you say provide a modern state-of-the-art system, do you have to specify something like this? But this is the type of decision that, which you have to, to take when you, when you determine your essential minimum requirements. And what... When you were determining these essential minimum requirements, uh, I'll ask, what level of expertise did you fall back on? Because if this is a greenfield, a new project to South Africa, you must have lent yeah. a lot of experience internationally to, to, from an advisory point of view yeah. to guide the, the progression of this project? Yes, the, the provincial support team, uh, coming back to what were the requirements for those people to be appointed, uh, we made sure that, first of all, they were big enough with all the in-house expertise in their particular fields, of course, and also had relationships with international companies. Uh, so, for example, uh, the three technical companies, one of them had an association with an international company, uh, our financial uh, company had a, a relationship with Rothschilds, for example, uh, which is also an international financial company. On the legal field, uh, our legal company didn't have it, but uh, uh, we then appointed a, a company in London, Masons, which, which had experience of rail PPP projects and step uh, uh, getting the, the, the RFP documents and the CA developed. So, yes, but our people in South Africa, I can, I can tell you I was amazed in this project because we worked with international people on all fronts, and, and our South African consultants uh, doesn't have to stand back for, for any of them. Okay. Uh, so yes, we we had quite quite a lot of international expertise inside our South African companies, but we we had to give the confidence a company, a major international company like Bombardier, who did the rolling stock, yes. or Buick, who was who's one of the biggest construction companies in the world, they will not take the risk 
to get involved in a project in South Africa if they're not sure it is properly based and uh, the necessary legislation, it functions properly and so on because the, the size of the project, it's just too large. The financial risk is too large if, if it's not properly run. Mm. So that was the reason why we also made sure that we had international companies involved in our site to give the confidence to these people, don't worry, this, uh, this project is on par with anything you can get internationally. And actually, uh, you probably heard, but in the end we won prizes, international prizes for the, for the project uh, when it was compared to other projects in the world. We are still with Olas van Sale, former project coordinator on the Gautrain project, and we've been discussing the issue of procurement and the lessons learnt along the way. Take us back a step there and just take us through the steps yeah, uh, from a we, procurement point of view. We, we appointed the, uh, the, pref- the pre-qualified bidders. We, we had about 10 companies expressing an interest, but only two qualified, which is just about the minimum. I think if you look at it, Theoretically, you would say, I would like to have at least three or four. Uh, But out of the 10 that made proposals, only two qualified. And you can argue that maybe our requirements were too stringent. And we had certain requirements, for example, that the same rolling stock train provider couldn't tender for more than one. And uh, uh, and this provided a problem because there aren't all that many uh, the, the real big companies working in in this field. There are only a few international. And then to set up a consortium to to tender and 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 you can't tender with more than one if you're an expert uh, service provider uh, for such a project, then it starts limiting the. And, and that, that's probably the main reason. There were uh, Japanese companies, for example, who said, but, but we don't provide any service ourselves. We tender for a project like this, and then we buy in all the different functionalities into the project. But uh, they couldn't give the, the, the guarantees and the securities for, for the project. So we only had two. Associated with this is, is, is also then how do you work with these people? Now, what, what we had is what, what we called a bit cost compensation, which was in the end up to 200 million rands, which we provided to the, to the pre-qualified bidders to help them in the process. We think that we subsidized about half of, of their total cost in the end. But this was crucial. We wouldn't have got those people to sit here for two, three years with big teams in South Africa, some of them international, and work on the, on the bid process and, and sort of developing the, 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 the process. Okay, so then we went through the bid. I've already spoken about the RFP 2 and 3 and, and, and the final RFP. What, of course, is also critical is your, 
your requirements on how do you evaluate this. Now, this is also when I spoke about bribery and corruption and those things earlier. This is where you've got to make 100% sure that there's absolutely no possibility that anything can take place. So you've got to develop an evaluation manual beforehand. You make it known. The bidders know exactly. Government, the politicians, Treasury, everybody knows exactly. This is the process. These are the weights. You, and then when you do the evaluation, you evaluate it in silos. Uh, in other words, people evaluate a portion of the proposal. They don't know what the other silos are doing. They come with the result at the top and uh, they submit that. And then there's only a few people who get those results in. They add it, they add it up and they do the final evaluation. That is then presented to the, in our case, the politicians. We had a political committee. They went away for two weekends and, and we worked with them through the whole process to make sure that they understand it and they made the final proposal to the, to the full cabinet. But then we also had what we call a probity auditor which had to come in and to audit whether the whole process was done according to the manual, the weights, the procedures that were prescribed originally. So that that was quite a, a, a quite a process. Quite a process mm. that we went through. Okay, and then as as I said, the the preferred bidder was appointed. We kept the other bidder uh, also on the side uh, to keep the the preferred bidder uh, honest. In, because then the negotiation follows. You then negotiate your final concession agreement. So was that as a, as a backup that if you couldn't reach agreement with your preferred bidder, we can you go, had a second option We've available. got a second option. Okay. And uh, 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 we went, we thought that's going to take four to six months. It took then 15 months to do the negotiation. Now the, the problem was that in this whole process, although the project was not initially uh, planned and developed for the Soccer World Cup, everybody said, that'll be nice if the project can be ready for the Soccer World Cup. And then, then we, we got pressure on us to, to try and finish the negotiations, get the project on the go. And in fact, uh, it was the politicians then in the end of the day, and that was actually very good where they said to us, because... As technical experts, we probably could have gone on with negotiation for another six months, but they said, now you've got to finish. And we finished it, and we started with construction at the end of September 2006. We had two phases. The first phase was the airport uh, Santon phase, and that we finished a few days before the Soccer World mm -hmm. Cup started. And then the, the second phase... Uh, which was then the, the link up to Pretoria uh, and from Santon down to Park Station. Uh, and that was supposed to finish uh, less than a year afterwards, but it finished more than a year, nearly two years afterwards, because then already we started having problems with water leakage in the tunnel. And uh, now, just to backtrack a moment, we had the PST, the provincial support team, 
But then as part of the concession agreement, we had what we called an independent certifier. That is a further independent body that has to certify that the work has in fact been done before payment can be done. Enormous check you against the various milestones yes. you had to hit along the and way. And actually, actually, at the end of the day, you get three checks because remember, Bombella, the the concessionaire, they didn't, and and it consisted out of uh, Buick, of, of a huge French company, and Murray and Roberts, one of the two biggest South African com- construction companies at that stage. But even the two of them couldn't do all the construction work themselves. So they subcontracted out to people like Concord and Basil Reed and and actually a whole lot of smaller companies. So they also had to check whether their subcontractor finished the work, whether it was done properly. We did it, and I can come back to that a bit later, that we actually didn't approve, we monitored but I'll come back to that later. And then the, the independent certifier also did it. So, so we were pretty sure that the work was well done. <coughs> the checks um, and balances were in place yes. to ensure that nothing uh, fell through the cracks. And, and again, the various milestones and, and deadlines were met. At, at, yes, at, at, at the end. Now, to come back to the, to the finishing off of the development phase, uh, we thought from our side that the the leaks in the tunnel should be repaired before the line is opened. And the independent certifier decided, no, he can certify it safe for opening and it can be put onto the snag list and repaired later. And yes, there was no safety problem, but we felt it was so critically important for the project, we would have liked the concessionaire to to, to repair that. That would have been a major exercise. I wouldn't guess how long it would have taken, but it could have taken another year or two. The the concessionaire, of course, he wanted to open the line and get the, the start running the operations and get the income from it as soon as possible. So we had a difference with the, the independent certifier, which was only sorted out right at the end of all the disputes and claims and so on at the end end of the project. But uh, uh, yes, that that was the process that we went through. Well, Lass, if you look back now, many years later, what do you think some of the lessons that were learned during that entire procurement process? And how would you do things differently if you did it again? Well, the 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 lessons learned, uh, and and maybe I should I should also come back. I've referred to the political committee, mm. the the premier or the provincial executive, the provincial cabinet appointed a committee of three MECs, and they were given the full mandate to take all decisions. In the first year, we we for example had to submit the suggested route for the for how train and a few other things. Then you go, you become an item on the agenda of the provincial cabinet, you go through certain processes, it, it takes quite a, a time to get an item on the, on the agenda for the provincial cabinet. Now you've got a provincial political committee who's got the mandate to take the decisions. They don't have to regularly meet every second Wednesday or so, and they can meet as and when necessary. And that helped us 
uh, tremendously. I think it's one of the successes in the fact that political decisions we could have taken if it was really urgent, the rule was within 48 hours. They had to get together and, and so on. So I would say that was an important lesson learned. The, the second one was, was our project leader, and we'll talk later on on leadership, but it was very important to have somebody from government who, who had the experience, the knowledge of major projects and government rules financially and otherwise, legislation and so on, because then you have certainty as what can be done and how it can be done. We've spoken about the provincial support team. I think we had a very good support team. Uh, National Treasury, uh, it was, they've, they've had a PPP unit, they still have a PPP unit, mm -hmm. but you work with specific people in there. And we were fortunate to have very capable people at that stage who was not only on the regulation side checking whether we were complying, but also advising us. And, and I think it also provided integrity to the whole process to have your government's national treasury also involved in the, in the project on a, on a very close basis. Uh, the evaluation process and criteria, I think, I've mentioned that, but I think we, we did quite well there. And, 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 and I've referred to the whole arms deal, which was in the press at those, at those stages. Yeah. We, were, we were approached by organizations saying to us, what are you going to do to make sure that you don't have any possible suggestions of, of corruption and irregularities. So we made 100% sure, and, and we even established a new process, which wasn't in other, we didn't have in, in, in other projects where, uh, where we had what we called an anti-bribery pact, which we compiled and we signed with all the people all our provincial support staff people also had to sign confidentiality documentation and so on in order that everybody and also the bidders understand that that every everything will be done according to rules and regulations which will not make provision for any possible irregularities or bribery or things like this the bid cost compensation I refer to, I think that was also unique, but very important because that kept the bidders here good teams from, from their side and they could give their full attention to the, to the, to the project. The, the delays maybe, if I can close with that, mm. uh, the, because we thought it's going to take a year or two. And we were always very optimistic with all our programming in the project. But uh, in the end, it took five years plus for the whole feasibility study, procurement, and so on. Now, the delays were the EIA, which was a huge EIA. It took a bit longer than we thought. The fact that, that we had to go through a sort of a double process in the bidding because the first proposals exceeded the... Uh, the affordability limit, that also, uh, uncertainties with regard to funding. When we started with the project, we thought province is going to fund the project on its own, but it became very clear later province won't be able to do it, and we needed to have national government support. 
and uh, uh, it was the years that Trevor Manuel was the Minister of Finance, and I can assure you he sent us back ten times to redo certain analyses and cost estimates and so on to make 100% sure that this was a feasible project also from the financial side. And that that put us back. And then, as I already said, the very long and complex negotiations with the preferred bidder, which we thought four to six months, and it was 15 months in the end. So that all added to, 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 to the delays. But I think in the end, it was all worthwhile. Well, Olas, thank you very much for your time. We value your input. Uh, you've been listening to Olas van Sale, former project coordinator on the Gautrain project. He's been providing us with insight into the lessons learned from that project covering the issue of procurement. To listen to this and other interviews about the Gautrain, please tune in to our podcast at Gautrain Talk Station. You can also access further material on our website, www.gautrain.co.za, or follow us on Twitter. 